humans thriving on Earth. And if you're looking for some wisdom about food and how to help feed yourself, you're going to get it right about now with Mike Perini. Pandora's Lunchbox is coming up next. Thank you, Ollie. I may go make some solar tea. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Joe Riley's coming back to the studio. Remember, this is oh, a white good. buffalo woman production. All right. Say it. Takoyasen. <laughs> If Pandora's box is a box of chocolates, would I know? Stay away. I said, if Pandora's box is a box of chocolates, would I eat them anyway? Cause every time I have half a mind to leave you, babe, that means I have half a mind to stay. It's Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good evening, this is Mike. Pandora's Lunchbox is a show about food and the connectiveness between food and everything, which pretty much pretty much means everything makes me hungry. Now, as you may have just heard, uh, Kurt Vonnegut has died. He died at the age of 84 on Wednesday. The author of classics like Slaughterhouse-Five and Cat's Cradle, other books that have been mentioned. And I'd like to start the show with a, a little bit of Kurt Vonnegut speaking. He's reading from Slaughterhouse-Five here, and this has food references, and so you see it's all connected. Now, this is from the Associated Press. Kurt Vonnegut left for Germany during World War II, where he was quickly taken prisoner during the Battle of the Bulge. He was being held in Dresden when Allied bombs firebombed the German city. In his Fates Worth Than Death book from 1991, he says, The firebombing of Dresden explains absolutely nothing about why I write, what I write, and am what I am. But he spent 23 years struggling to write about the ordeal, which he survived by huddling with other POWs inside an underground meat locker labeled Slaughterhouse 5. The novel that emerged in which Private Pilgrim is transported from Dresden by time-traveling aliens was published at the height of the Vietnam War and solidified his reputation as an iconoclast. This is Kurt Vonnegut. Billy Pilgrim could not sleep on his daughter's wedding night. He was 44. The wedding had taken place that afternoon in a gaily striped tent in Billy's backyard. The stripes were orange and black. Billy padded downstairs on his blue and ivory feet. He went into the kitchen where the moonlight called his attention to a half bottle of champagne on the kitchen table, all that was left from the reception in the tent. Somebody had stoppered it again. Drink me, it seemed to say. So Billy uncorked it with his thumbs, didn't make a pop. The champagne was dead. So it goes. Billy looked at the clock on the gas stove. He had an hour to kill before the saucer came. He went into the living room, swinging the bottle like a dinner bell, turned on the television. He came slightly unstuck in time, saw the late movie backwards, then forwards again. It was a movie about American bombers in the Second World War and the gallant men who flew them. Seen backwards by Billy, the story went like this. American planes, full of holes and wounded men and corpses, took off backwards from an airfield in England. Over France, a few German fighter planes flew at them backwards, 
sucked bullets and shell fragments from some of the planes and crewmen. They did the same for wrecked American bombers on the ground, and those planes flew up backwards to join the formation. The formation flew backwards over a German city that was in flames. The bombers opened their bomb bay doors, exerted a miraculous magnetism which shrunk the fires, gathered them into cylindrical steel containers, and lifted the containers into the bellies of the planes. The containers were stored neatly in racks. The German below had miraculous devices of their own, which were long steel tubes. They used them to suck more fragments from the crewmen and planes. But there were still a few wounded Americans, and some of the bombers were in bad repair. Over France, though, German fighter planes came up again, made everything and everybody as good as new. When the bombers got back to their base, the steel cylinders were taken from the racks and shipped back to the United States of America, where factories were operating night and day, dismantling the cylinders, separating the dangerous contents into minerals. Touchingly, it was mainly women who did this work. The minerals were then shipped to specialists in remote areas. It was their business to put them into the ground to hide them cleverly so they would never hurt anybody ever again. American flyers turned in their uniforms, became high school kids, and Hitler turned into a baby, Billy Pilgrim supposed. That wasn't in the movie. Billy was extrapolating. Everybody turned into a baby, and all humanity, without exception, conspired biologically to produce two perfect people named Adam and Eve, Billy Pilgrim supposed. Billy saw the war movie backwards and forwards, and then it was time to go out into his backyard to meet the flying saucer. Out he went, his blue and ivory feet crushing the wet salad of the lawn. He stopped, took a swig of the dead champagne. It was like seven up. He would not raise his eyes to the sky, though he knew there was a flying saucer from Tralfamador up there. He would see it soon enough, inside and out, and he would see, too, where it came from soon enough. Soon enough. It's Pandora's Lunchbox, and we just heard some Kurt Vonnegut there reading from 
from Slaughterhouse Five. Kurt Vonnegut died at the age of 84 on Wednesday. And there's an excerpt here from In These Times, an interview from 2003. The interviewer asked Kurt Vonnegut, how have you gotten involved in the anti-war movement, and how would you compare the movement against a war in Iraq with the anti-war movement of the Vietnam era? And Kurt Vonnegut said, when it became obvious what a dumb and cruel and spiritually and financially and militarily ruinous mistake our war in Vietnam was, every artist worth a damn in this country, every serious writer, painter, stand-up comedian, musician, actor, and actress, you name it, came out against the thing. We formed what might be described as a laser beam of protest, with everybody aimed in the same direction, focused and intense. This weapon proved to be, this weapon proved to have the power of a banana cream pie three feet in diameter when dropped from a stepladder five feet high. That was Kurt Vonnegut. And we're listening to some music by Moore, Karouche, and Velez. This is from an album called Mokave Volume 1 on the Audio Quest, Quest label. And thinking of Kurt Vonnegut made me think about, well, Kurt Vonnegut and Friday the 13th coming up tomorrow, and food, always food, made me think about bad luck and food and surrealism. Did you know about the Boston Molasses Disaster? This is something that might have been in a Kurt Vonnegut book, maybe in Breakfast of Champions, I don't know, but this actually happened, you can look it up on Wikipedia, the Boston Molasses Disaster, also known as the Great Molasses Flood or the Great Boston Molasses Tragedy, occurred on January 15, 1919 in the North End neighborhood of Boston. A large molasses treacle tank burst, and a wave of molasses ran through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour, killing 21 people and injuring 150 people. The event has entered local folklore, and residents claim that on hot summer days the area still smells of molasses. The disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Company facility, one day before the 18th Amendment, which mandated prohibition of alcohol production, was ratified. Hmm. It was an unusually warm day. At the time, molasses was the standard sweetener in the United States. It has now been supplanted by high fructose corn syrup. Mmm. Molasses can also be fermented to produce ethyl alcohol, which is used in making liquor and was a key component in the manufacturing of munitions. I think we have a connection here to Slaughterhouse 5. The stored molasses was awaiting transfer to the purity plant situated between Willow Street and what is now named Everettese Way, if only a Bostonian were here to help me with this, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. A huge molasses tank, 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, and containing as many as 2.3 million U.S. gallons of molasses collapsed. Witnesses stated that as it collapsed, there was a loud rumbling sound like a machine gun as the rivets shot out of the tank and that the ground shook as if a train was passing by. The collapse unleashed an immense wave of molasses between 8 and 15 feet high, moving at 35 miles per hour and exerting a pressure of 2 tons per square foot. The molasses wave was of sufficient force to break the girders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway's Atlantic Avenue structure and lift a train off the tracks. Nearby, buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed. Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet of molasses. Now here's a quote. Molasses waist-deep covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled a form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a thrashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. The Boston Globe reported that people were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. 
Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of sweet-smelling air. Wow. So that is... Oh my god, this is the uh, molasses... Here we go. The, the, I can't even speak. The Boston Molasses Disaster, also known as the Great Molasses Flood or the Great Boston Molasses Tragedy. And there's more on this on Wikipedia. There's a lot on this. First to the scene were 116 sailors from the light ship USS Nantucket training ship that was docked nearby. And they came to help. The Boston police, the Red Cross, the Army, and, the, and other Navy personnel arrived. Some nurses from the Red Cross dived into the molasses while others tended to the wounded, keeping them warm and made hot coffee as well as keeping the exhausted workers fed. Many of these people worked through the night. The injured were so many that doctors and surgeons set up a makeshift hospital in in a nearby building. Rescuers found it difficult to make their way through the syrup to help the victims. Oof, what a mess. So, here's one. It took over a man decade... A man decade. The amount of work in a decade of pure labor without breaks to remove the molasses from the cobblestone streets, theaters, businesses, automobiles, and homes. And it goes on and on. That's the molasses disaster of January 15th, 1919. Friday the 13th is coming up, and again, it made me think about bad luck and food. Speaking of bad luck and food, you wouldn't want to be eaten on a day like this, would you? Now, there's a fellow who has been wanting me to play this song by the police, Friends, for quite some time. I think it was January. It's it's pathetic that I haven't gotten to it. I keep meaning to. This is the police with the B-side to da-do-do-do-da-da-da-da. And this is Friends. And uh, it's spoken by Andy Summers, and it's about eating people. Let's see if you can make out any of the words, and I'll, I'll try to remember some of them, and we can translate from English into English goes a little something like this. I like to eat my friends and make no bones about it. I like to eat my friends, I couldn't do without it. Ain't a man or poet friend, I know just how you'll taste. Your limbs go sliding down my throat and never go to waste. Your death of ghosts will sadden me until I drop your essence. I know your life was not in vain when digestion is commencing. Consider this a celebration and the deepest pack of friends. I hope that you will dine on me when I come to an end.
Isn't it beautiful? That's Friends by the Police. The B-side to do-do-do-do, da-da-da. This is WCBN, and we're looking at bad luck and food and the fact that Friday the 13th is coming up. Now, as far as Andy Summers there talking like a pirate, uh, talk like a pirate day isn't until um, September 17th, so sorry about that. But some of the lyrics of that song, where did they go? Here we go. Your death, of course, will sadden me until I grok your essence. Now, what does grok mean? You must want to know. That's actually uh, from the novel Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. It's a Martian word meaning literally to drink and metaphorically to be one with. The emphatic form is grok in fullness. So let us all grok ourselves in fullness here and, and try not to get in trouble with the FCC while doing it. I know your life was not in vain when digestion is commencing. Consider this a celebration and the deepest pact of friends, and I hope that you will dine on me when I come to an end. (sighs) That's so romantic. It's beautiful. And speaking of uh, Friday the 13th and good luck and things like that, here's something. I don't know if this is good or bad luck. This is from the Associated Press. An errant opening day pitch by the mayor of Cincinnati has inspired a sandwich. It's called the Mark Mallory Screwball. Mallory's ceremonial pitch April 2nd at Great American Ballpark there's a name, was several feet wide of home plate that made him the butt of jokes on late night TV. Now he says he's flattered that a restaurant near Cincinnati City Hall is naming a sandwich for him. Izzy's Deli describes the sandwich as any two meats tossed in the general direction of a bun or two pieces of bread. The screwball will be served with a potato pancake and pickles for $7.75. Mmm, screwball sandwich. So if you might want to take some alcohol with that of your choice, but here's the thing. This is from the Ann Arbor News. With local approval, bars and stores could sell alcohol after 7 a.m. on Sundays and until 4 a.m. the rest of the week under legislation the House could take up next week. That's the State House, naturally. Details are still being worked out, but the plan calls for allowing liquor in Michigan, allowing Michigan liquor licensees to apply for extended hours permits from their local units of government and pay the state for the privilege. It would be a shot in the arm for the entertainment industry, and it would be a shot in the arm for the state budget, says Representative Steve Tabachman of Detroit, the bill's sponsor. Last call now is 2 a.m. in Michigan. On Sunday, shoppers can't purchase beer, wine, or distilled spirits before noon, but retailers have unsuccessfully sought for years to move up the time of Sunday sales. So we'll see what happens there. And speaking of bad and good luck, here's a bit of bad luck that turned into a bit of good luck. This this is also from the Associated Press. And with luck, I'll be able to actually find the piece of paper that I was about to read to you. Here we go. Bread truck's misfortune is stroke of luck for the needy. And that's something we can't say just any day. 
When Douglas Oldham saw an overturned 18-wheeler filled with bread, he knew the cargo probably would get buried in the landfill. The operations manager of Oldham's wrecker service usually helps salvage wrecked cars, but he saw an opportunity to help feed needy people when he encountered the wreck. We try to help when we can, said Oldham, whose sister is a social worker. For employees of the family-owned business distributed hundreds of four employees distributed hundreds of packages from loaves to hamburger buns from Oldham's facility helped by the representative from the company that owns the truck and an inspector with the Georgia Department of Agriculture. Yes, this is in Georgia. Several churches, churches, soup kitchens, food banks, and shelters picked up bread, about 30,000 pounds of it, after the agriculture inspector determined what of it was still good to consume. So there you go. By 4 p.m. that week, all of the bread was gone, with the largest shipment going to the food bank of northeast Georgia, which picked up more than 1,000 pounds of bread. The food bank typically stocks day-old bread donated from local grocery stores. The free, free loaves were also a boon for the Lighthouse Tabernacle Church, which planned to use them in making sandwiches to feed 100 homeless people in Athens, Georgia, according to the Reverend Gregory Wright. Still, two loaves of damaged bread were shipped to the Athens-Clark County landfill for disposal. Two loads. <laughs> two loaves. They picked out two loaves, no, actually two loads of bread. This is Pandora's Lunchbox. It's a show about food, and we've talked about bad luck now, and there's been some, definitely some bad luck in the world. Tomorrow is Friday the 13th, but good luck is actually upon us, possibly, because tomorrow, Friday the 13th, is also the beginning of Happy New Year for some countries in Thailand, in Cambodia, and by some people in China and Sri Lanka, tomorrow is the new year, the new astrological year. Originally, Songkran, from the Sanskrit, meaning a move or change, marked the passage of the sun from Pisces to Aries at the vernal equinox on March 21st. But the Thais, ostensibly not being aware of the procession of the zodiac, moved the New Year celebrations to April. And this is something I got from the Pattaya Daily News. It says here, Sawati, no, sorry, Sawati P. Mai, Happy New Year to all our devoted wet readers. Now, mayhem, antisocial, and criminal activities usually radically increase over the Songkran Festival, which is April 13th to the 15th of April. It's essentially become, because of tourism's influence and each town insisting on enjoying the water games to the full, it's become an eight-day-long, complete dislocation of the business sector in Thailand, says here. They're even tightening security, sending in the Thai Navy at Chonburi Central Prison in anticipation of a breakout of long-term inmates desperate to return home to be with their families to celebrate the new year. Is this bad luck? Good luck? The impression gained by most foreign visitors is one of deluges of water as they themselves, and beautiful young women in particular, are targeted for drenching. What originated partially as the opportunity to pay respects to the Buddha and elders as plaster daubing, water ritual, pouring a thimble full of lustral rose water on other people's hands as a sign of respect, has now become total mayhem. Gone has the other original reason, namely the sympathetic magical ritual to encourage the return of the rains after the hot season, and in its place a high-tech water war has arisen. The thimble has evolved into a super soaker, the high-powered water gun, complete with backpack reservoirs, the cylinder spray water, the meter-long PVC cylinder equipped with a plunger, and the ultimate weapon, a water tanker armed with a hose. The walkers have turned into pickup mobile drenching gangs... Look out, it's a pickup mobile drenching gang, taking malicious delight in drenching Song Ta passengers and any dry person. 
In the worst-case scenario, Song Kran has almost become celebration of killing as motorcyclists and their passengers are swept off their bikes. This isn't sounding like good luck at all, I'm sorry. Or into the path of passing vehicles impelled by water guns, hoses, and the worst, freezing weather. Likewise, it's a fine time to OD on alcohol and wreak devastation on the roads, as nearly 1,000 motorists commit harikari during Song Kran every year. But this is not the essential significance of Songkran. Here we go. The Thai ancestors started this festival to inculcate in their descendants several important principles. Songkran originated as the opportunity to respect family, elders, and ancestors, to return to the parental home, pay respects, bring presents, and give thanks for parental care, to pay respect to the neighborhood elders, to visit the Wat, or Buddhist temple, to honor the Buddha, pray and give food to monks, to also clean Buddhist images with water and gentle Thai perfume to bring good luck and prosperity for the new year. It also includes community services at the Wat. Doing community services teaches people to give the fundamental way to happiness in Buddhism and to clean and renew the home, the Thai equivalent of spring cleaning. Only the rural backwaters retain the original spirit of Songkran. In the cities, especially Chiang Mai, the war of water renders best friends enemies and even gives one the chance to soak the police. Only the monkhood is immune. So take that any way you will. That is the Songkran, which sounds like there's a wash, if you will, in good luck and bad luck and all kinds of craziness. But nevertheless, Happy New Year to those who celebrate that. And I don't think that that's necessarily the only possible way to celebrate and isn't the only way that people respect that new year. But nonetheless, those are two very different sides of a celebration of the new year. This has been Pandora's Lunchbox for quite some time now. I've been Mike for at least a half an hour of that. And we're going to go out now with a tune from somebody who needs a little bit of luck. Actually, some food that needs a little bit of luck. And in a moment, we'll have Face the Music with Ed Special. It's four minutes before 7 o'clock. This is WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'd like to introduce you right now as we set out to say goodbye to Cecil the Unwanted French Fry. These are the Soul Setters. Hello there! I'm a Cecil, and I'm the Unwanted French Fry. I heard, oh, I heard my buddy singing. I saw my buddies leaving, leaving in the bag, certainly did. And I've been here so long, I'm starting to dry. I'm a Cecil, chickadee, the unwanted French fry. You know, not too long ago, as I laid in the potato patch up north, I always dream of the day when I would be cut up and fried into a golden brown french fry. And I dream of the big city with the bright lights and I'd lay in a golden pan under a nice hot little old light just waiting for somebody to come along and eat me. But instead I got all stuck out here in this old dilapidated run-down hamburger stand where heaven knows who goes by and nobody around here seems to like french fries. I've been here about three and a half hours and this owner is too cheap to buy a 20 watt bulb to put on the meat so I can keep warm. You know, I got a cousin who went up to the city, 
And I can just bet you that he's lying in a nice golden pan Along with all my other relatives Just tanning himself to old and brown And people are just anchoring for, for just a little old bite of him While I'm sitting here all cold and hard And just wondering what's gonna become of me You know it's an awful thing when you're all alone When nobody cares whether you stay or go I only wish that somebody would come And order me and take me in their hand Put me up to their teeth And bite into me and say <clears throat> Is that French fry good? Instead, I guess I just get thrown out Like all the others Well, I didn't get to be what I wanted to be But I guess that's the way it goes with french fries And with everything else So if you're not what you want to be Try to make the best of it Of what you are I gotta go now But remember, if you ever go And you see an old brown broken up french fry Trying to keep yourself warm That'll be me, Chickadee, old Cecil. Order me, take me home. I sure will be good to you when you bite in. Well, I gotta go now, so don't forget, I'm a Cecil. Young wanted, young wanted Frenchie. Oh yeah, I'm a Cecil. Young wanted, young wanted Frenchie. Oh. I'm Cecil, the unwanted Frenchie. Mary Provost did not look her best. The day the cops bust into a lonely nest. In the cheap hotel up on Hollywood West. to me. 